Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks, everybody, for being here for Political Rewind today. we got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to get right to the panel and start our conversation. It's uh, Wednesday. Greg Bluestein, the political reporter for the AJC, joins us most Wednesdays when he's not out covering uh, stories, as if that's more important than sitting in the studio and talking about Never. politics. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Greg. Thanks you read Greg me. in virtually every newspaper edition of uh, the AJC. And of course, he files regularly and many times a day for the uh, Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Uh, what's your latest? What are we going to read from you in the hours ahead? I'm doing a story exploring the different political responses to the whole toxic gas emission because you, you see lawmakers in Covington are having a diff- very different response than lawmakers in Cobb County. Okay. We'll talk about more than We are going to talk about that quite a bit as soon as. One of our other panelists, Senator Jen Jordan, who's deep into the Sterigenics uh, Smyrna story, uh, arrives. She's stuck in traffic. Yet another reason why this show is actively promoting transit <laughs> in, in Metro Atlanta. Heath Garrett is back with us. He's a Republican strategist, probably best known for the work he's done for decades with Senator Johnny Isaacson. Heath, we've missed you. Thanks for being back. I'm glad to be back on, on a Wednesday. Yeah, you've got, that's right, we love seeing you here on Mondays, but I'm glad you could be here today. You are really, you're starting, to, the, the election cycle's heating up for you. Your candidates are, you're starting to get busy, right? Yeah, they're in the full swing for 2020. Yeah. And it, it's the, what I call the perpetual cycle now. I think yeah. we're almost there. It doesn't end. Uh, Amy Steigerwald is with us. She, of course, is a professor at Georgia State University. And Amy Steigerwald, you have some interesting things coming up in your life. First of all, you're going to be at this, you're the annual conference of political science professors from around the country. What's your association called? Uh, it's the American Political Science Association, and so you and five, you can go meet 5,000 of the best and brightest <laughs> political scientists around the country. They'll be presenting their research. Well, the reason I mention it specifically is that it was a year ago at the conference That's true. that you got on a plane coming home and sat with Andre Gillespie. Exactly. And Andre got back here and sent me a note saying, wow, you really need to get Amy Steigerwald involved with Political Rewind, too. And here it is a year later, and you're very involved with us. I know. I am thankful daily to Andra for making that phone call, and it's been great. Yeah. Um, the other thing we should mention is that you run the internship program. You select interns to go work at the state capitol, and you're embarking on a statewide tour to encourage students to become interns, right? We are. So it's the Georgia Legislative Internship Program. It's for students who are juniors and seniors in any Georgia state uh, college or university. So in the state of Georgia, it can be public or private. Uh, You work full-time at the legislature. You get paid. You also get course credit. It's one of the few that exists like that. And um, we are. We're going to be heading up to uh, the various campuses of University of North Georgia, Georgia Southern, out to Savannah, I think we're going to Clayton State, UGA, Georgia Tech, everything. All right. So if you're a student at one of those campuses and are interested in the internship program, look out for Amy Steiger coming to your campus soon. Yes. Senator Jen Jordan, thank you. You you fought traffic to get here. I did. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really glad you're here. In fact, yeah. I'm glad you're here now because we need to start with a story that you are deeply involved with. You've been um, very active in working on the sterigenics story. Greg Bluestein, just to set it all up, uh, you can help us with this. Sterigenics, a, a plant that uh, sterilizes medical equipment up in Smyrna, and it the, it, it, the um, Georgia Health News, our, our friend mm-hmm. uh, Andy, Andy Miller. Miller and WebMD published a story a few weeks ago saying that sterigenics is emitting a toxic chemical that at a plant of theirs in Illinois, the state was so concerned about they shut the plant down. Sterigenics here is still operating and there are concerns about what's happening. Is yeah. that fair as we set up Jen Jordan? Yes. 
And it's not just sterogenics, it's another plant B called BD Bard in Covington. It's relying on a 2018 federal EPA report that showed that certain tracts of land around these two plants had a had a higher incidence of this of this gas gas that it is a carcinogen. It's a, it's a cancer causing gas, and uh, one of the big issues is that people in those t- those areas were not informed about this until that WebMD and Georgia Health News report just a few weeks ago. Yeah, Jen, that's one of the important things about this story is that apparently EPA and EPD, I think I'm right in saying, you'll correct me if I'm not, both had been aware. That uh, the that there were problems, toxicity that could be dangerous to people who were in the area uh, 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 covered by this plant, by the emissions from this plant, and chose not to talk about it. Is is that right? They didn't make it public, right? Yeah, I mean it's true. Um, I'll tell you that EPA released their 2018 report in August of 2018 last year. Um, you know, reached out to EPD, told them. Um, and then started asking EPD if they had any plans to do any air monitoring. And the answer basically was no, that, you know, they really didn't have any plans to do that. And they basically sat on the information um, until WebMD and, of course, Andy Miller, um, uh, you know, basically told the public what was going on. So let's to set up the conversation and to bring everybody in. Um, there was a big, big town meeting that you were a part of, Jen, I know, in uh, in Cobb County the other night. thousand people showed up to yeah. express their concerns. EPA, EPD were there. Um, Governor Kemp has n- not been high profile in all of this. He did, I, I wasn't even aware, Bluestein, maybe you were, he did apparently release a video last week talking about this problem. I hadn't even seen anything about it. I finally did come across the video. And let me just play a little bit of what Governor Kemp said, again, last week. And, and he makes the point at the very beginning of this that he says he wasn't made aware of this problem until just last month. Let's listen. At the end of July, my administration was made aware of elevated levels of ethylene oxide emissions in Covington and Smyrna, Georgia. We immediately took action by working with federal, state, and local partners to review the data, investigate the findings, and demand answers. As a parent, I understand why local families are worried. The results are confusing, the news coverage is frightening, and the public has been left in the dark. This situation is simply unacceptable. I am, however, pleased to report that Sterogenics in Cobb County has agreed to voluntarily reduce emissions. We are negotiating with BD Bard in Newton County to do the same. I assure you that we will take the necessary steps to protect our citizens from harmful emissions and ensure a healthy future for all Georgians. Jen, the governor had a meeting with uh, representatives from both of those companies <clears throat> last night, and uh, he said that BD Bard, he, he, he said, I demanded that they take the same precautions Sterogenics has. All right, all that said, give us your take on where things stand. Look, with respect to Sterogenics, they're doing what they said they were going to do in the first place to try to get ahead of the EPA regulations that are supposed to come out within the next year. Um, and basically what the EP, the new regs are going to do is take into consideration that ethylene oxide is now considered um, a carcinogen, um, a level A carcinogen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's nice that they've voluntarily done this, but at the same time, they're going to have to do it anyway in order to be in compliance with federal law. So, you know, there's that. I will say it is incredibly concerning that BD Bard doesn't seem to be <laughs> concerned at all and seems to be pretty nonplussed by the whole thing. Um, I'll tell you that with over a thousand people showing up at the Civic Center the other night in Marietta, I mean, this is, this is an issue that, that has sticking power um, and it's something that the governor's gonna have to deal with. Okay, so sterogenics, to the best of your knowledge now, is in compliance in terms of the emissions. Haven't you, haven't you called for the plant to be shut down at least temporarily while there's a study, environmental study? So, the, so this is the problem, Bill. Okay. Yeah, they're in compliance with the law as it is because the law as it is is based on the idea that, e- that ethylene oxide isn't dangerous, right? So they can, under their permit, they can emit thousands of pounds of ETO into the atmosphere and not run afoul of the law. We know that is 
actually bad for the public now. Um, so it's kind of cold comfort when I have people say, well, you know, they're following the law, you know, they're in compliance with their permit. And because that that doesn't help things now that we have new information with respect to ETO. And in terms of what they're planning to do, who knows? I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually going to get the job done. I mean, the concern is um, in a densely populated area where sterogenics is, is there any level of emission with respect to this gas um, that's acceptable? And, you know, the science is starting to indicate that there may not be. So are you you are urging them to at least temporarily shut this plant down? Absolutely. And that's what happened in Illinois. Yeah. So basically, the state of Illinois entered into a consent order with um, sterogenics up there. It hasn't been approved by the judge, but, but basically they're shut down until they put the emissions reduction technology into place and then can prove that, in fact, they're not emitting um, ETO into the atmosphere. Here, sterogenics has been allowed just to go about business as usual. And while they do have plans to, to put some new technology in place at some point, um, you know, like I said, 24-7, they continue to operate, and, and we really don't know what the effect of, of that is on the community surrounding the plant. Heath, um, you advise uh, politicians and elected officials on, on uh, many things, including their uh, public-facing postures. Right. Uh, EPA and EPD, we've got a number of layers here. Right. Um, <clears throat> EPA administrator told Jim Galloway, who was up at that meeting the other uh, night, and, and Jim reported it in his column in today's paper, gee, yeah, maybe we should have informed the public sooner. Uh, take, give your take on that, given that, again, one of your jobs is to h- help people learn how they ought to be communicating you know, it's always in hindsight, as always, 2020 in, in all of these situations. This is a complicated science. Uh, it, it, we've left out a couple of the, the first study done about this was in 2014, uh, came out during the Obama administration. You know, no, no, nothing done there. Um, actually, it was in 2016 as the, as the, the first administration. study was in 2014, actually. The, the 10 we were on the phone study. with the EPA the other day. And they're all, I mean, again, this is how complicated it is, right? So you have a state senator who has a couple of studies, and then you got the EPA telling federal officials there was a 2014 study, right? And then you've got different levels of the carcinogen, right? It's not just a question of whether or not this is a carcinogen. Is it what level in the air is it harmful to human beings? Because thousands of products are carcinogens, right, but at different levels. Uh, I think this is always a legitimate question to ask, what did you know? When should it have been known? There are still questions to this day about, you know, what the level is in and around uh, the facilities uh, in both Smyrna and in Covington. And you've got the complicating factor of all of this, Bill, that the same carcinogen is produced by automobiles driving on interstates. And so that's one of the questions with air monitoring in the area is how do you do that properly? So. There is an argument for EPA and EPD to be making that, hey, we were in the process of moving this through the right way. Um, And so I think that, you know, looking back, absolutely, somebody should have said something sooner, should have alerted the county, the state. They should have done air quality monitoring sooner. But there are still a lot of open questions about this. And there are some you can't just shut plants down. Right. Uh, until well, but all, Illinois you know, did. Well, they have a statute that allow that gives the governor some not, authority. Not, not at a, the time. They didn't. They actually well, just passed that statute. Right. They had the governor in Illinois has other authority that the governor here doesn't have, and you have litigation issues, and it is a taking. Right. If you shut it down uh, without due process. Amy, uh, jump in. Attorney, Let, wait, wait, weigh in on this. So I would say that I think part of what is also confusing is that it's not only the dates of the study, but there's a couple of different things that are going on. So number one, that there's a 2018 study that was based on 2014 data, because the time you have to collect the data and then you have to analyze the data. And so a lot of times you have a a break between those. Right. The NADA report that came out in August of 2018 is considered the 2014 NADA report, even though it doesn't come out to 2018. And the things that changed it were the study, the scientific scientific study of ETO that was done between 
2006 and 2016. It was a 10-year scientific study done okay. by the EPA. Right. right, and one of the things that happened is that in 2016 is when the EPA, who up until then had been right, still collecting data about this particular um, byproduct that comes out at a lot of plants, and that's when they determined, like, wait a second, we didn't realize what could be the long-term effects of particularly low levels of exposure to this, and in 2016 they said, this is more of a problem, right? And so we need to sort of pay attention to that. And so part of what's happening here is trying to figure out what that is. It's trying to match up that data. It's also, which I think does seem to be a little bit different in the Georgia context than the Illinois context, which I don't know quite as well, that there is the testing the EPD has done has shown that there's been a drop in the amount of mm-hmm. um, pollutants that are being put out and the levels at which they're being put out by the um factories that are here, particularly the stereogenics one. Um, I'm not sure if they've done a similar test yet on with with BARD, but so we, there has been a drop there. But again, it's this concern, because part of the problem is, is we don't really know what happens here. It's very difficult to do these types of studies, to really measure it, to also figure out where do you have to be placed? Is it potentially getting into the water system? Is it spreading in other ways? Because that doesn't show up immediately. It's not the kind of thing where it comes out or and then we know what sources, happens. there are other sources, right? Or- it can also be, are there other sources? Sources. I mean, what they, yeah, it sounds right. like one of the things that I think is particularly concerning is that they have found elevated levels, not in the residential areas. So this is the testing the EPD has done. So they're not in the residential areas around the plant, but they are in the businesses. In the businesses yeah. And there's quite a lot of them. And yeah. so, and that's where, um, you know, again, there's this concern of how, what is the right way to handle this? And does that mean that in the interim, as they're putting in these changes, they need to shut down? Greg, I know you're dying to jump in here. Can I ask you a question? And then you can answer yes. it and go on with anything else you mm-hmm. want to say about this. I, I, you know, you cover the governor regularly. You talk to him. You talk to his people. I talked to Cody Hall early this morning about this story because I was a bit mm-hmm. confused about just where Governor Kemp stands on all of this. I was a little confused based on articles in the paper this morning. He, they, The reason I point out that you cover them extensively is they're pretty good at communicating with you, I think. I think they're proactive and aggressive when they need to get a message. They want you to hear their message. Fair enough? Sure. But in this case, they, they seem to be... The fact that we here at George Public Broadcasting weren't aware of this video that the governor put out last week talking about this. The fact that I had to contact Cody early this morning to say, does the governor think sterogenics is fine and B.D. Bart isn't? It's a little surprising the way they've handled this And the reason you probably weren't aware of that video is because it popped at late Friday. Yeah, okay. The the worst time to in the news cycle. And uh, I was at a Cory Booker event, but one of my colleagues wrote it up. um, But you're not going to get much traffic then. But that's when he announced he was having this meeting with the the different executives. But, yeah, I mean, look, in his own admission, he didn't know about this problem until last month. Um, He wasn't made aware of it earlier. Um, is what he said, and it's it's mushroomed, and yeah. it's it's probably one of the biggest political crises he's faced so far since taking office in January. And the response to it has been been um, uh, he's trying to keep pace with the public outrage because when you have a thousand plus people yeah. show up in Cobb County, including as Jim Galloway noted, people from across uh, city yeah, officials city from Atlanta, Atlanta yeah. from across Chattahoochee, and then you had hundreds more show up in Covington. And by the way, and this is public knowledge, but um, his his top aide. Tim Fleming lives in Covington and has been at these meetings too and lives in that that sort of area around Covington. Um, so he's hearing it from his neighbors and his, his and his relatives and friends there too. So this is this hits close to home for, for the governor's staff. So let, let me be sure I understand, and then again, I want everybody else to get involved mm-hmm. again. So based on the story I read this morning, the governor in the meeting last night said to the BD Bard folks, you need to start monitoring your air quality. You need to start taking the same steps Sterigenics has already taken, which led me to assume that what he means is Sterigenics is doing exactly the right things. They're fine. You're not. Or that at least Sterigenics is an example now because Sterigenics entered that consent consent order a few weeks ago where they voluntarily agreed to pay a few million dollars, as, as Senator Jordan said, to do things that they might have to do 
in the next few months anyway. But they've taken that step. BD Bard has not. And uh, I was, you know, from what I heard from several people uh, familiar with the meeting yesterday, was that it was a testy meeting. Um, it was uncomfortable, and that uh, the executives from BD Bard resisted doing the same thing Sterigenics did, which is why you had that statement yeah. from Kemp afterwards saying yeah. BD Bard should do what Sterigenics did. Jen, look, I think Sterigenics learned their lesson in Illinois. I think that they kind of went through that where they said, we don't really have to do anything. This isn't a problem. And what are you going to do to us? And I think the state of Illinois showed them what they could do to them. Right. Um, so I think that's why they've tried to get in front of it down here. Um, and, and, you know, from my first call for, with the CEO, he said, well, we're going to put these extra this extra technology in place to reduce emissions and the like. Um, and they immediately hired somebody to do kind of public outreach for them and all this stuff. And, you know, quite frankly, I think it's because, you know, they can see what happens um, when you don't do what you need to do and the public gets outraged. But in terms of some of the numbers and stuff, I think that the thing that's most disturbing is there really hasn't been any testing. All of this are self-reported or the modeling is based on self-reported numbers from the facilities. So when EPD talks about numbers or what it's done, it's doing that based on self-reported numbers from the facility that are actually based on a formula and not really in terms of real testing. And that's why we've been pushing for the independent air monitoring around the facilities, because I think we don't really know what's going to come back until we see that. Heath? Yeah, and every, I think everybody's in agreement about the independent and having the EPD do you know extensive air testing around uh, the area. And it goes back to the complication of all these types of matters, right? And how do you do that when uh, you've got an I-285 and I-75 uh, with stones throw away from the sterogenic? I, I want to make sure I understand and, something. And, and, and so it's one of the open questions. So apparently, right, and again, I'm not a scientist on this, but the, the carcinogen itself that the EPA is worried about is also created by some uh, traffic okay. on I-285. I, let me, so if you're doing air testing... Go ahead, I apologize. Simple, yeah, Finish if you're doing air testing, <clears throat> right, the question is, uh, near a facility that's next to an interstate... But you're not arguing Oh yeah. So that clear, EPD was perfectly fine in not initiating its own monitoring of the air back when they first learned of this problem because, gee... Oh, it might be influenced by other factors like cars well, driving past and, the plant. And I'm not speaking for EPD. Oh no, I mean I think the question becomes with all this complicated data, you know, did EPD alerted the governor in July? I mean that timeline is very different than EPD should have been doing something a year ago. I think the question becomes this is a complicated model, and the question becomes how and when do you do this given all of their things? And so I think that'll be part of the debrief. But as Senator Jordan, Jordan said. I think we need to know. We need to do the test, right? And it needs to be done correctly with the right models before we assign guilt, blame, and or total. And I think that's part of the, you have a legal responsibility to do that as the EPD, as governor, as mm. the county okay. commission chairman, those things. Amy, uh, let me just uh, uh, share with you. Tom Faust found a statement, in fact, from BD Bard. They said they are committed. I, uh, this came after the meeting, right, Tom? Uh, they, they This came yesterday. They're committing to spending $8 million to improve their systems and work with the state, and here's the quote, to expedite the permitting process with full transparency to install improvements as quickly as possible to the Covington and Madison facilities. But that's different from the same consent order that the Stereogenics agreed to. That doesn't go as far as what Stereogenics did. Yeah. Um, Amy, is one of the ironic things here is that Barry Loudermilk, who is now expressing great concern, Congressman, Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk is expressing concern about the emissions. He's the same congressman who in 2017 uh, was one of the most impassioned members of the House arguing that EPA should be shut down entirely. There are definitely some tensions that arise here between uh, dealing with science and also sort of the arguments that one may want to make and bring that out. I mean, I think the I think the issue is that if we presume the I mean, the EPA and the EPD are here to ensure that 
we all are in a healthy environment. And so that is their goal. And that does sometimes come in conflict with um, mass production of certain things and chemicals. And we know that a lot of these things that factories produce byproducts, those byproducts, this is this is not a new thing. This has been a long term thing. And that sort of brings it really into tension because, yes, companies don't want to voluntarily take these measures because they cost money. And they that that's money that's going to go away from their bottom line that they're going to perhaps, you know, say they have to pass along. And so that brings it into tension. Um, but at the same time, right, we don't want it to be that people are getting cancer because yeah. they live too close to a plant. I've got to get to a break. But, Jen, uh, at this point, your demand, if that's a fair word for it, that sterogenics shut down at least temporarily while the air quality can be monitored <clears throat> around the facility, a determination could be made whether it's safe or not. Where does that stand? What can happen with that? Is is that is that a wish that's out in the air? Uh, what do you expect can happen with that? Yeah, look, this is what happened in Illinois. I mean, mm. Sterogenics agreed to do that, to, to shut down until they put the technology in place that would reduce emissions. Quite frankly, I think that the people in my district, the people in Georgia, are entitled to just as much protection mm. as the people in Illinois. Mm. And so... That's why I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because I think that this consent agreement that was entered into basically now precludes the state from from moving in that direction um, or to bring any kind of action in court. There'll be a stopped from it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep keep asking right. for it. Okay. Uh, we, we do have to get to a break, and we have a lot more to talk about. So we're, we'll all continue to watch this story closely in the weeks ahead. As, as Greg, I think you made an interesting comment. And it's one we should listen to. You said you think this is the biggest crisis the Kemp administration has faced since they came into office. Yeah, or at least right up there in the top three. And and the political responses that are very interesting because they they do vary widely between some Democratic calls to shut down the plant, and then Democrats in Covington, for the most part, are not, which is really interesting to me. They're 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 taking the same approach as Republicans, which is the sort of more testing but more more wait and see almost. All right, so I, I know I got to get to a break, but that's an important point to make. And Heath, I wonder if if it's something that you would agree with that that business interests uh, among many political uh, uh, leaders, elected officials on both sides of the aisle tend to trump many other uh, concerns that the public might have, including environmental ones. There's no question there's a tension between business interests and environmental interests. The question is, how do we, what's the due process, the fair process, and shutting facilities down? Okay. Um, we got a lot more to talk about on the show today. And, you know, Jen Jordan, we're really glad you're here because you figure into the next story we're going to talk about as well. <laughs> this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. Recent mass shootings have accelerated calls for more red flag or extreme risk laws, but they're far more likely to be used in cases of threatened suicide. I don't for a minute believe that red flag laws will in any meaningful way interrupt the epidemic of mass shootings in this country. How red flag laws are being used in Vermont this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Greg Bluestein, the event happened last Friday night, but for a variety of reasons, we really haven't had a chance to talk much about it. Uh, we had the 11th District Marksmanship and Barbecue, the fifth, I think, annual event, and uh, they drew the biggest crowd they've ever had, and county and leaders in the 11th District said they owe that all to Senator Jen Jordan, who <laughs> tweeted out her feelings about how this was a bad idea and bad timing, which, by the way, is not um, I, I'd, I'd laugh about the fact that they target. They, they, I don't want to make a pun about that either. Sure. Uh, 
it's not funny that you think the timing is bad. That's all I really wanted to say. But the point is, Greg, it's interesting. Stephen Fowler, our, our uh, political reporter at GPB Radio, covered the event. And it was interesting that they made the same points, Republicans there, that we're now hearing uh, President Trump make uh, ever since El Paso uh, and Dayton, which is, well, background checks for a while, uh, and then it was all back to mental health. And at that barbecue Friday night, that's what everyone, all the Republicans focused on. This isn't an issue of guns. It's an issue of the people who carry the guns. Exactly. And you're also hearing those same Republicans kind of kind of skittish about the issue of red flag protections and expanded background checks that you heard President Trump kind of flirt with right after the shootings. But the issue, and, and Senator Jordan can, can expound on this, but the issue that was raised was the timing of it all. Uh, you know, uh, uh, days after those two massacres, um, the event organizers said this was long planned. This is what, the fourth or fifth year in a row that they've done this event and they weren't going to scrap it. And then it was about you know, it was about Second Amendment protections and, and not meant to, meant to you know, denigrate the memories of, of anyone who, who was uh, the, of, of the massacres in Texas and Ohio. Um, but I think Senator Jordan's tweet raising uh, questions about that did spark a lot of talk in, in Republican circles as well. I was at um, the, uh, the annual Tillman hangar rally up in Rome a week before mm-hmm. that, and that was when Representative Barry Lauterberg kind of took issue with it for the first time. Um, no one questioned him about it. He just brought it up on his own and said that he he himself was a uh, survivor of that mass shooting in um, at the congressional baseball field. In Arlington, that, yeah. In, in Arlington. And that, and that um, he wasn't waiting, he wasn't looking to, to take any uh, gun control action. He was just trying to survive. Well, uh, Stephen Fowler talked to uh, Barry Loudermilk at that event. Here's just a little of what Loudermilk told him. The whole time I was pinned down, I never once thought, man, I can't wait till I get back to Capitol Hill. I'm going to pass a law. No, because the last thing we need to do is do something that won't have an effect, but we feel good about it. And so the legislature walks away and they don't do anything else and nothing changes. And that's typically what happens. So you pass a bill dealing with mental illness, but it doesn't do anything, right? You, you pass a bill requiring everybody to get background checks, but yet in all those cases, all of them passed a background check and legally got their weapon. Heath, uh, the president was on the on the lawn waiting to get on Marine One to go off to another rally tonight. He he took a lot of questions, wide-ranging responses, but he did talk about background checks. Here's what he said. We have background checks, but there are loopholes in the background checks, and that's what I spoke to the NRA about yesterday. We know he had a long phone call uh, with Wayne uh, uh, LaPierre, LaPierre and, and we believe that in that phone call, LaPierre kind of talked him out of promoting background checks, working for background checks. But he went on to say they want to get, NRA wants to get rid of the loopholes as well as I do. At the same time, I don't want to take away people's Second Amendment rights. So, among other things, my question for you is, uh, as a Republican, where the heck does the president stand and what's he <laughs> asking you all to do? It's just, it's very hard to know what's going to happen next. Well, I think the president is who he is. He he is not afraid to show the American people what every other president goes through behind closed doors. He just does it in front of cameras and on Twitter and in texts and emails every day. He, he's kind of like a lot of CEOs do. He just thinks out loud a lot. Do you think um, CEOs kind of flip-flop like that? They, what do you think happens to the value of the stock and what no, the board thinks they, when they, a they CEO does well, that? They don't, they don't, they don't behind closed doors, right? So if oh, they, okay. If, if, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if your listeners don't realize, there's, I mean, President Obama debated all these same issues behind closed doors. He just didn't do it in front of the cameras. I think Donald Trump's arguably one of the most transparent presidents we've had uh, in, in history. However, what I say about that is, is that, look, I do think that he also has an interesting history on on the Second Amendment. He, throughout his career, he's been at times in favor of uh, more things, in closing loopholes on background checks. I do think that he's in his mind and in, in the White House, they're discussing red flag legislation. I think that they're looking at how do you uh, come forward with domestic terrorism legislation. I think, they're, I think he does have a little bit of let's put it all on the table and let's figure out what's achievable. Uh, Senator McConnell, uh, Senator Graham, both Republicans have put background checks and red flag legislation potentially on the table. And you have plenty of other Republicans who are looking at strengthening domestic terrorism legislation. So I do think that there that the president's open 
minded about this, and then he's going to try to figure out what could actually be passed. Amy, the Congress is back after Labor Day. What do you personally think the chances are that anything is going to get? The House already has legislation that the Senate could take up, but of course won't. Mitch McConnell won't won't allow that to happen. What do you imagine the chances are, unless the president is crystal clear on what he wants, that anything will happen? Zero. (laughs) Okay. I mean, as you said, there's a House bill that could be voted on by the Senate. McConnell has already made clear that that's a non-starter. There appeared to be, so there is work being done um, in, uh, particularly in the Senate, uh, that's on red flag laws as well as on potentially strengthening background checks. That one, maybe it's a bipartisan bill that's being worked on, so that might be something we're going to see. But I think the other side of it is that for a lot of people, they do want to see, uh, particularly uh, the elected Republicans. They want to see leadership from the president. They want to have some idea that he's going to sign the bill if, in fact, they pass it, right? If they go and they vote for this, they want to know it's going to be signed, that he's not going to veto it, because then that puts them, um, particularly in election year, right, in trouble. Um, There's also, you know, there's other things that could be discussed, whether or not they will go forward. But, you know, not shockingly, I'm an academic, and so I would like the um, restriction on research done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on uh, gun deaths, as well as just like the use of guns, et cetera, and gun safety, that all of that research is right now uh, not allowed under um, federal law and under their funding. And so that would be one way to potentially at least be able to address some of these things. Which we should point out, by the way, Greg, the the CDC, the prohibition for CDC to not study gun violence took place under a Democratic president, under President Clinton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's I just want to point that out for people out there who want to blame all of the issues about guns not getting more laws put in place on Republicans. And that's one of those bipartisan consensus things where you're hearing Republicans and Democrats say that should be lifted. The problem with President Trump's wavering on these issues and the skittishness over it is it doesn't provide any Republicans who do want to make make other changes to law and, let's say, support expanded background checks or red flag prohibitions. Um, Any cover. They have no cover. What is David Perdue thinking this moment about what he's going to do if the president, if he can't depend on the president. Exactly. I talked to him three days in a row. I think it was Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday on it. And I saw his position evolve from not sure, hasn't read it yet, to read it, still skeptical, to to, um, has grave concerns about due process. You saw him get more skeptical about it as the days went, and now and, and, the, and, he, and Republicans will face, who, no matter what their position is, they'll face pushback from Second Amendment groups, and Republican and conservative activists saying that they will withhold support from them if they have if they take any stance seen as not pro-gun. Um, so they need the they, a lot of them need the cover from President Trump, and if he's kind of wavering on his positions as we've seen, it's hard for him to do that. Well, Jen- and the other issue is that the longer we get away from, unfortunately, when the event took place, the more it gets sort of out of. Yeah the minds, not only of the legislators, but of the public, of the media coverage, of the various constituencies. And so it becomes easier to sort of not do anything right without that. Jen, meanwhile, um, let's talk about how all this impacts state legislation. We we know that you have legislation that you introduced during the last session that's still alive and and you can take it back up in January to keep guns out of the hands of, uh, of people who are you have to be convicted, is that right, of domestic of abuse? Domestic abuse, and it basically mirrors the federal law. I mean, part of the issue that we have is that um, the folks that generally deal with domestic issues are state you know, police officers. So they're DeKalb County or Cobb County police or, or the like. And the domestic abuse situations are prosecuted at the state level, not at the federal level. Um, so our law enforcement folks and prosecutors, they, they can't that take advantage of the federal statute now. And so all we were trying to do is to make it consistent at the state level just to give law enforcement kind of another tool um, in their tool belt. So do you imagine that El Paso and Dayton would have any impact on what's going to happen to your bill when the session begins again in January? And will will it's primarily about Republicans because that you need their support at this point. Um, do you sense, have you talked to any of your Republican colleagues about your measure since those terrible shootings took place? Or do you sense that you might get more support across the aisle at this point? Or do you think 
because President Trump is unclear on what he cares about with guns nationwide, that that gives them cover in the state of Georgia as well. Is that a fair question? It's a fair question. You know, I'm unsure, Bill. Um, I'll tell you, I have private conversations with people who express one thing, um, and then in public they express another. And so it's one of these things that it's disheartening on a lot of levels um, because I think that everyone can agree that this is just kind of common sense legislation. Like if you if you can't control yourself not, you know, to beat your wife and children, then maybe you shouldn't have a gun. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, so it's one of these things we'll see. I mean, the problem is, is that, yeah, the further we get away from El Paso and Dayton, yeah, you know, but no doubt there will be another mass shooting. And my problem is I just don't want it to be in this state. Yeah. Heath, is this an issue that will come back if Republicans don't, if the president doesn't act, if uh, the Senate can't come up with an answer to what the House wanted to do? Right. Do you worry that this is an issue that could have an impact? Let's just talk about Georgia. Let's not talk about presidential politics. You still figure that Republican, although although the polls that the AJC does show vast majority support uh, gun control measures. Or some sort of gun control measures. But but Republicans, where do they stand and what will it mean in your election cycle? Well, as we all know, the Republican-Democratic kind of mix in the state of Georgia is changing very rapidly, right? The the 2020s are going to be the decade of change. I think that unlike the monolithic approach that Republicans have had over the last couple of decades, along with with Democrats, right? right? The last two Democratic governors were... A plus rated by the NRA, the uh, I think you're going to see it become an urban, suburban, ex-urban, and rural split within the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party on where people stand on these issues. And remember, this is a Second Amendment right. Just like when we start talking about limiting somebody's speech, everything has to be very narrowly tailored in legislation. I think when you're talking about guns, uh, legislation that's more narrowly tailored, I do think that suburban Republicans uh, and urban Republicans are going to be speaking differently about this over the next couple of years. And I do, I've talked to a number of pollsters on both the Democratic and Republican side. The public around the country is in flux on this. But one thing that's interesting that they don't see either side really coming up with any legislation that's going to solve the actual mass shooting when you get down to the details, right? Because like Barry Lowermick said in his piece, the background checks wouldn't have stopped you know, any of the more recent ones. And then some of the ideas that we as Republicans come up with on mental health are really hard to implement. And how do you predict uh, the instability of an individual before it actually Greg, happens? Greg, what do you see? At, uh, oh, do you want to go? Yeah. You know, Peggy Noonan wrote a really good piece on this um, a week or two ago. And basically what she said is this is a crisis. We are in a crisis situation in this country. And really what we need to do is we just need to try everything. Or if something doesn't work, then then we pull back, we try something else. But in terms of us not doing anything, which is what Congressman Loudermilk basically said and was advocating for, that's just not an option anymore. Yeah. Um, so for what it's worth. Peggy Noonan, of course, a conservative mm-hmm. uh, writer and uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, probably finest speech writer. Greg, where do you see all this playing out? Look, we saw leading state Democrats take positions on guns that, as Heath mentioned, would never would have been unthinkable, you know, just a few years ago when you had you had NRA Democrats win state statewide office. So, I, I mean, I think the issues is it's coming to a head in the suburbs. And as, for, as much as we talk about how the heartbeat anti-abortion bill will play in the suburbs, um, I'll be very interested to see how gun control continues because we saw Lucy McBath win a Republican, long-held Republican stronghold in the 6th District. Won. She won it um, in part because of her gun control message. Okay, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, we've got a couple more issues that I would love to get to before we run out of time. We'll see how far we get. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ross Sorrell. GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. On the next Fresh Air... See, I'm a a law and order guy. I love my country. 
I love my judicial system. That's Stephen Root playing the handler to a hitman in the HBO series Barry. He just received his first Emmy nomination after appearing in hundreds of TV episodes and films. He's probably best known as the sad sack office worker Milton in the film Office Space. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Jen Jordan, Amy Steigerwalt, Heath Garrett, uh, Greg Bluestein in the studio for today's Political Rewind. Greg, you uh, put an item up on the blog, the Political Insider blog that I was interested in. The uh, campaign arm of the Republican Party, National Republican mm-hmm. Party, has something called Young Guns. These are um, candidates they've identified for kind of special help, mentorship, Maybe having a few people come into the district, right? Not necessarily younger, but yes. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I was interested yeah. in, young guns. And they've picked some favorites. Not They haven't singled out one person, but they have picked favorites in the 6th and 7th district races and excluded others. Um, in the 6th, most noticeably, they excluded Heath Garrett's client, Brandon Beach, and are working with Karen. And they've identified Karen Handel. Yeah, and it's not really a secret that they haven't formally endorsed Karen Handel, but it's not really a secret that they're that, they, that she's her, their favorite. Um, they've even done polling um, testing Karen Handel against Lisa McBath one-on-one rather than testing, uh, at least at least publicly testing, um, the other candidates. Uh, and in the 7th District, too, they, they picked a few candidates at the expense of some others, including uh, they picked um, Renee Unterman, and um, uh, she was among the, the two. Lynn Homrick. And Lynn Homrick. Oh, yeah. Um, so but it's really it's really interesting how that's playing out in the sixth because uh, they're 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 kind of putting their eggs in the uh, the handle basket. It is an interesting concept, and uh, obviously I represent Brandon, but she's getting she because she was the former congresswoman before Brandon and others got into the race. There's kind of this decision that we're going to give her some kind of quasi incumbent status. Now they've slowly started backing away from that and are providing far less resources than they would be if she were a true incumbent. Uh, and I do think that Brandon will end up on this list. Uh, you know. He outraised Karen Handel in the in the last quarter and got some attention from the folks in Washington. So uh, there's no question that she's got the inside track uh, from the NRC. Well, I thought, it, but, yeah, I thought it was. I think in, that he'll work his way. I, I thought it was kind of that. interesting over in the seventh that they put Lynn Hamrick in there with Renee Unterman. And the only thing I could think of, Ben Jordan, is they saw Lynn Hamrick has the ability to self fund her campaign, has a lot of money she can put behind the race. Yeah, that's true. But there was also a third candidate, <laughs> yeah. too, out of that yeah. race. Yeah. Um, so I'm not quite sure. It, it, it was. Well, the I difference mean, is, the, in fact, she's a former congresswoman. That's the difference between the handle. seventh and the sixth. Handle's yeah. a former congresswoman. All right. I, it's, it's not a, it's not one of the most important items we'll discuss this week on Political Rewind, but it was really interesting to see how they were doing that. I remember, they right. snubbed a few other Republican candidates, too, including... Um, Donnie Belena, I guess, who, who dropped out of the race and then got back, back into it. He's back. He's no longer a white nationalist, right? Yeah, I, miss... I don't know if he's no longer. <laughs> <laughs> he's no longer proclaiming himself yeah. to be a white and, nationalist. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is highlighted on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate watch list yeah. um, as well. So. Yeah. All yeah. right. We're going to uh, uh, follow that. But I want to turn. We're not going to have enough time to talk about it in depth. But this is a subject we'll be coming back to again and again. Amy Steigerwald, uh, the uh, Department of Public Health released its numbers for 2018, saying that abortions jumped 4% in 2018. There were 28,500-some abortions in the state. And, of course, anti-abortion activists um, argue that this gives lie to what the Democrats and and pro-choice folks say is abortions are rare in Georgia, and they're basically saying this this proves why we've got to get this law put into effect, 481 uh, into effect as soon as possible. On the other side, Planned Parenthood says, no, what this really proves is that we need more access to contraception in Georgia. The fight continues. Indeed, it does. I mean, in many ways, it's a fight not only over, right, sort of core values of, right, that all people have a right to life as well as all people should have a right to bodily autonomy and what happens when you have a, right, it's the the only thing that exists in which we have, right, one human literally is... uh, dependent upon another human for life, Mm -hmm. and that person also, right, is very affected by the one that is growing inside of them. And it's Mm -hmm. a very symbiotic relationship, but I think it's also that, you know, it's it's somewhat, it's concerning, and I almost rather would hope that the state of Georgia, I'll put in, this is my plug, like, our maternal mortality rates are abysmal. 
And if we could all just get together and focus on that, it would be a much better use of time because at the end of the day, women who are carrying uh, pregnancies to term and also like giving birth, a shockingly high number of them are dying during that process, right? They want to have the children. And so this is an issue. And then it therefore, you know, potentially scares others of what might happen. Jen, uh, at just about the same time that the Department of Public Health released those figures, the state of Georgia was in court, uh, filed its response to the ACLU lawsuit claiming that uh, first there should be a stay of 481. It should not go into effect the first of 2020 and probably won't if uh, if Georgia's like the other states that have dealt with this. Um, but then they went on to say that uh, to to uh, to argue against the basic premise of the ACLU case, they say it is the state's duty, it is justified, the law is justified because it's the state's duty to protect life. And, and of course, although they didn't have those figures, to the best of my knowledge, uh, they would, I'm sure, now say that the number of abortions, 28,000 plus last year, just proves why they need those protections. Your response? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to in, in terms of, I'm going to go with Amy here. I mean, expand Medicaid, get access to health care and a contraception to women. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, what we see is that abortion rates go down um, when women have access to health care and to contraception. And so Georgia is not one of those states that's considered kind of friendly to, to, to helping women access that. So it doesn't surprise me necessarily that um, maybe the abortion rates went up a little bit because if, if if women don't have access to birth control, they can get pregnant and have unwanted pregnancies. In terms of what the state is arguing, I mean, I looked at the briefing mm-hmm. um, pretty quickly, but basically it's a lot of the same stuff that they were citing during the process when 481 was going through. And a lot of it's not true in terms of the statistics that they cite and the like. <clears throat> and so it, it's a little, um, I mean, it's a little depressing that, that they're kind of pushing some of this stuff out there. Um, but I guess that's really their only option. Heath, it occurs to me that everything we've talked about in the show today is going to be fodder for the 2020 election cycle. Uh, uh, certainly guns, uh, uh, storage, uh, keeping the environment safe. And now 481 it, and, and it is certainly going to play heavily into the cycle. Yeah, there's no question, you know, and again, we're, I think Amy did a great job of teeing it up. You've got two very fundamental rights to our Constitution and that are, people are very passionate about in the country and the state and our local communities are pretty evenly divided on. And so these are these are the what we call the wedge issues and people and there's a lot of passion behind both sides. And you, Bill, you and Amy both mentioned something. I do think that the responsible voices on the pro-choice and the responsible voices in the pro-life could come together on contraception, could come together on uh, 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 maternal mortality and could come together on foster adoption and a few other things that we can do to start to reduce it voluntarily while we debate it constitutionally. All right. We are virtually out of time, Mr. Blusine. Would you like to make a final comment about this? Well, when we talk about 2020, it's, it's, it's a lot like a reprisal of 2018 when both candidates in both parties really tried to expand their bases rather than move to the middle. And and these are issues that do energize their bases. All right. That's it. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Amy Steigerwald, Heath Garrett, uh, Jen Jordan, who fought traffic valiantly to get here this afternoon, and Greg Bluestein. Thank you all so much for being with us. And thank all of you out there for joining us for another uh, Political Rewind. I thought great panel today. I'm really grateful for everybody who was at at the table today. We're back again on Friday at 2 o'clock, and I look forward to seeing all of you out in the audience then. Take care.